Uh, good morning, everybody. The uh, what you just heard, if you're visiting, and I'm I'm sorry, if you are, <laughs> is uh, that do has is the last note in uh, the opening song. We play the same opening song every time, and uh, somebody requested that they be heard. The the folks. <laughs> The folks who, who shout do at the end of that has have become famous. They're now known as the do choir. And uh, Terry from uh, Great Britain said that she we recorded it and she heard it. She said, I heard the do choir. Awesome. It made my day. So. That is right from Great Britain. Yeah. So, Terry, you're, all you're doing is encouraging them. So anyway, uh, good morning again and welcome and uh, let's just uh, get right into our worship service this morning and let's open up with prayer and let's thank God for our time together to just uh, hear his word and to concentrate on him, sing to him and and to have a, a time in which we can also learn and grow in grace and knowledge. So with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for another day in your world. Thank you for making us members of your kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for him and his sacrifice and all that he has done in our behalf. We thank you, Father, that through him we are forgiven of all our sins and each of us are sinners. And that, <clears throat> Father, by your grace and your mercy, we continue to grow in grace and knowledge to mature, to understand more of you, and therefore uh, live more properly as you would have us to please you, and also to rely upon you, on your grace, on your forgiveness, and your love. We thank you for your word and its, uh, its fullness and all that it reveals to us concerning you and us and our relationship with you in our Lord and Savior who died for us. And, Father, that through that wonderful revelation that we can know and understand. And that makes all the difference. And so, Father, as we turn to your word again this morning and together worship you, we uh, ask that through your spirit our hearts would be enlightened and informed and see more of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, all rise, please.
Uh, we're going to start in Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. Uh, this passage uh, is Mark 6, Matthew 14, John 6, uh, are all about the same event which is uh, known as the feeding of the 5,000. But uh, there's a lot that is occurring in these uh, few days, one to two days, in the, uh, the ministry of our Lord in His first advent. And you know, he's, uh, he's been doing quite a bit of miracles, and that's why the, the crowd's following Him. Uh, we find this in... I'll get back to that. In John 6, verse 2, opening up this section in John's Gospel, it says, And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so, I mean, it, this is quite obvious that you, know, you have a man who uh, his teaching and his life have revealed him as what they would call him a rabbi, but of course we know him as more than that. Um, but he did an, an enormous amount of miracles, um, more than we could possibly know or that are recorded. And they're following him because of that, and it would make sense. And <clears throat> so it, it shows us, you know, uh, at the start, you know, what are, what are miracles for? It's to gain the attention of the hearers so that they'll hear, uh, because, you know, if if Jesus were here all the time performing miracles, uh, you know, what good would that be to us? And in fact, we'd get used to it, wouldn't we? Uh, we? We'd become very used to it. If you saw Jesus walking on the water every day, you'd get familiar with it. It wouldn't be an awesome sight anymore. And we're like that. Um, but when it comes to the life that we've been given by Christ, uh, this life, which is a life of, say, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, uh, when those things are constantly occurring in our lives, it turns out that we don't get real familiar with them. i would never heard of someone say, or or profess that I'm so used to being, I'm so used to the love of God that I'm just like, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Um, you know, and, and all around us, miracles happen all the time. You know, there's, just in our physical world, uh, you know, looking out at the stars at night, you know, you've got a, a billions and billions of, Fusion reactions going on out there. That's what stars are, these amazing fusion reactions. Our own sun rises and sets. Uh, our own world is full of physical things that are quite miraculous, even our own bodies. The fact that they function as they do is not by mere chance. I don't care what evolutionists say. <laughs> it's not. It's quite miraculous. But we're used to those things. So you take a breath, you don't think about it. You get up in the morning, you don't really think too much about it. Your brain works, your heart works, if it does. 
you don't really give it much thought. But when it comes to this life that is Christ has given us, we never become familiar with it. And it is truly miraculous. For creatures like us, fallen as we are and sinful, uh, to love with God's love, just out, you know, to have any part of the fruit of the Spirit is an amazing and miraculous event. If you're faithful, if you're kind, you know, truly kind, it's miraculous. And you never grow used to it. And the people that you're kind to and that you show love to and that you're faithful to, they don't get used to it either. Well, I guess some do, unfortunately. But the people in your life who who know it, I guess that we can all get familiar with one another as a part of our fallen nature. But regardless, let me get to my point here, is that eternal life is a life full of miracles. Um, and a miracle is a supernatural event or occurrence. And since man is corrupt, we're all born in Adam, Romans 5. We're all born in sin. When Adam died, we all died. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And sinners like us, saved by the grace of God, are entered into union with Christ by the baptism of the Spirit at the moment of salvation, when we believed in Him as our Savior. And an amazing miracle happened at that moment. And, th- and this is what this what Jesus is going to teach on this day after he has fed 5,000, walked on the water, calmed a storm. He's going to then teach the people who have gathered to him because of his miracles. He's going to say, now, there's a bread of life that comes from heaven, and if you eat of it, you will never hunger again. And they're all going to, of course, say, give us this bread. That would be great. And he reveals that the bread is him and that the eating of the bread is faith in him, to believe upon him. And the whole, the, all of the New Testament is full of this. this and Paul writes it over and over and over, that the believer is in him, in Christ. That phrase, en Christos, in the Greek, it, it, the ramifications of it are monumental that when you have believed in Christ as your Savior, you've entered into union with Him, and therefore you have His life. His life is your life. And the fellowship of the Trinity is your own. And a believer can have all of this and not really know too much about it. This is all believers have it. All believers are imputed with the righteousness of God. All believers are made, set apart unto God forever. All believers are justified. All believers are sanctified. All believers are these things. We're in union with Christ. Saved eternally. Longing for the redemption of these bodies. Romans 8. And yet, the problem with the church, and it always has been this, is ignorance. They just don't know it. I mean, how many believers know this? And, and how how true it is, and and, and to know it is is to know the the uh, impact of it. You know, what does it really mean? The disciples at this point don't know what it means to have Christ. 
They see him as the Son of God. They're, they're very clear. They know this. He couldn't do what he did, does without him being the Son of God. They know this. But there's, they don't understand what that means to them. If, if Jesus is over there doing miracles and I have no part with him, it's amazing, it's great, and he feeds me and he calms my storms and all of that, that's great. But if I have no part with him, eventually I'm going to part from him and never see him again. But to be in him, even though I don't see him now, so who writes that? I think it's the first John, is it? Though you don't see him, you love him. And when he appears, it's first John three says, when he appears, we will be like him. And we have absolute faith and hope in that. That nothing's going to prevent that. And therefore, to have that uh, perspective is to have a life full of miracles. It happens, you know, for every single day for you to have to be faithful, to be loving. Now, of course, you're not perfect at this. You're going to sin. You're going to let people down. Uh, you're going to let yourself down. Uh, but by the grace of God, there I go. I'm going to pick myself back up, though I have failed, and I'm going to do what I'm called to do because... I'm forgiven, and I have all of this is mine, this life. It's mine. It can't be taken away. I can't lose it. I can't forfeit it. And so, uh, to just be loving, faithful, loyal, courageous, uh, forgiving, kind, wise, powerful, being powerful in, in my heart is a miracle. And it's an everyday occurrence for us if we understand. <clears throat> so on this day in, in where Jesus has fed the 5,000, walked on the water, we, we've been talking about this all last week. I remind you that the disciples are exhausted. They have been serving the people for days, they've been so busy, they haven't had time to eat. And Jesus said, hey, this is in the beginning of Mark 6, he says, let's go rest. Let's go somewhere and rest. And you can imagine the disciples are like, oh, God, thank God. So let's go rest. But the crowd finds out where they're going. And when they get to where they're going, they got into a boat, and you can imagine them. I, I imagine them just, you know, coming around some corner in the Sea of Galilee, and there's a little cove there where they, you know, they're going to rest, and they can just picture it in their mind, hanging out and resting. And when they get there, there's thousands of people there because they found out. And these thousands of people are needy. Aren't people needy? Uh-huh. I am. I, I, I think of others and how needy they are, and I, I get like, God Almighty, can you just not be so needy, please? And I fail to to think of how needy I am. Human race is needy. <laughs> we need quite a bit. And, and and Christ, you know, the it's amazing to see the, the reaction of the disciples is well, we find out later. They want to send them all away, the crowd. But the reaction of Jesus is compassion. And uh 
So, Jesus on this day is going to show them his power. Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000 and then then finally sends the crowd home and the disciples are probably thinking to themselves, oh, thank God I can finally rest. The people are fed and now we can rest. But then Jesus tells the disciples to get into the boat and to row across the sea. And there are great lessons in this for the disciples and for us. Again, they're exhausted. When they get into the boat, it's dark. It's dark out. So they've been at this all day, and now they've got to row across the sea, which is seven miles across. And by three or four in the morning, they've made it halfway. So that's eight hours on the sea, and they only made it three miles. It's very slow. Why is it so slow? Well, by coincidence, there's a storm. There's a wind that's against them. Sounds like life, right? Sometimes. I'm in the boat. I'm rowing. The oars feel like they're going to snap. And the wind is always against me. Can I please get some wind with me? You know. And so let's look at, look at Mark 6.45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. That's actually Peter's hometown. While he himself was sending the multitude away. And after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., he came to them. So from the shore he can see them, which I'm thinking is son of God eyesight. (laughs) I wouldn't be able to see them. And he, he, he sees that they're straining. He knows the wind is against them. This is all by design. And then he decides to head off walking on the water, and he came to them walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. We have, there's a lot of ideas about why he would intend to just go by, but nobody knows. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him or were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished. And this Greek word means just that. It means to be amazed. They were amazed, for they had not gained. But notice what he finishes this paragraph with, Mark does. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Uh, In Matthew's account, they say, this is surely the Son of God. He's walking on water, he gets into the boat, he calms the storm. This is surely the Son of God. But there's some aspect of this that they don't yet understand, and their heart was hardened. So we'll get to that. First, he says to them three things. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. It's three separate phrases. Take courage. Your own ideas and perspectives make you despondent. This this is a key here. Perspective. How do we see things? It's easy to see things and become afraid and discouraged. I just, I, 
you know, read the news, right? You become discouraged. The path of our nation, you become discouraged. Maybe things in your own life, your own sin, your sinful ways, you become discouraged. Your own patterns of failure, and you get discouraged. But Jesus here says, take courage. And for what reason should I take courage? Because I'm in him and he's in me. And that's going to make all the difference if I see what that means. It's going to make all the difference in my life. A believer with the right perspective can overcome anything. It is miraculous power to be able to see things through the eyes of Christ, to be able to see things through the eyes of God. And it may look like everything in the world is falling apart around you, but you'll be saying, you know what, God has a plan here. I don't know what it is, but that's between him and him. <laughs> you know, the trend, that's, between, that's up to them. It is not up to me to determine the course of things. <clears throat> Take courage. It is I. <laughs> right? That's one of those things, you know, the I am's of the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. I am. Uh, it's I. He said, I am when they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's when they all dropped to their knees in worship of him. They didn't even know why they did it. Because he said, ego, I me. In Greek, I am. And that, that's God's name. I am that I am. It is I. No one, you know, anybody else says that, you can just shrug your shoulders. <laughs> At least you should. Hello, it is I. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever. But when the Lord says it, it means everything. And uh, do these guys deserve Him? Not remotely. And not not in any other reason other than they're weak, sinful men. We all are. We all are. Uh, I I just adore Paul's. Thank God he wrote this. Uh, I meaning Romans seven. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. They're all in the first person. They're, he's speaking of himself. They're all in the present tense. Every one of those, eye, uh, those eyes, he, he speaks of himself presently. And he comes to the conclusion that I am a wretched man. But then he says, who will save me? And so it is I. You know, have in him. None of us deserve this. Will he come into your boat when you are at your lowest? Yes. Should I pray to God when I'm at my lowest and my weakest and my sinfulest? Is that a word? It's not a word. Yes. Yes. There is never anything barring you from the Father, from God, other than your failed perspective. But nothing, nothing is barring you because Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, sits at the right hand of God. And so the, the lines are open. So take courage 
It is I. It is I means hope. 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 Uh, one of my favorite passages lately has been in Romans 8 about the, the fact that we hope in the redemption of these bodies. I, I think probably because I'm getting old and things are hurting and more. That in Romans 8 it said we long, long. It says we groan in these bodies, longing for the redemption, meaning our resurrected bodies. That's hope, you know, hope. And in that passage, Paul says, we don't hope for the things that we see. We hope for the things that we don't see. And this, it is I. Am I in union with Christ or what? And I am. Therefore, I have hope. Even my behavior has been bad lately, if it has. I have hope. I can turn this ship around, especially when Jesus gets in the boat with me. So the third one is, don't be afraid. Jesus calms storms. He walks on water. Right? Is anything impossible with him? No. So, don't be afraid. Don't fear. I think oftentimes the thing we fear the most is ourselves. I mean, if you've been at the Christian way of life for a long period of time and, and you have striven to please God and to walk in the manner of your calling, I, that your number one enemy is you. I mean, what gets in the way of that? You do. I could say, yeah, the devil made me do it or whatever, you know. <laughs> it's a, I, I have to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. I know I have the devil as an enemy, but really, who is my enemy? Isn't it me? And it is entirely me. And we can become completely destitute in that. Just throw our hands up, throw on the towel, the heck with this. It's not worth it, is it? But these guys have been rowing across the lake for eight hours. What else are they going to do? They're halfway across. They can't turn around and go back. I guess they could. But they don't. But Jesus shows up at the right time. He calms the storm. says, now you guys can rest. I picture them all just passed out in five minutes. One minute after he calmed the storm. They haven't, been, they haven't had a, anything to eat or any sleep for a long time. But, you know, and it's, it's wearisome. So as Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. And he says, I have fought the good fight and therefore laid up for me as a crown of righteousness. And fight this good fight knowing that at the proper time, Jesus is going to come and calm the storm. And he's going to give you rest. And that gives us courage. Uh, unfortunately, the disciples haven't understood all of this. Uh, we're at a we're in a good place. We can read these gospels after knowing the Lord for years, and we can even look at these disciples and say, "Come on, guys, get with it." But you know, in the same situation, we'd all be the same. Uh, they don't get it yet. That's the that's the key, though. Yet, they will. They'll get it. It's going to take a little time. Same for us, though. And I, I love this about them. 
I love the fact that Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking, but and I love the fact that he sinks. Um, because we all sink. And, and yet, Peter's going to be a changed man. They all are. Because they're going to get it. The, the, the reason they're going to get it is because they want to. Yeah, they know they've been called to something miraculous, and they're going to go forward with it. They're not really qualified for any of this, are they? But God is, they, they understand God is going to give them the power to do it. At Pentecost, when they all are <clears throat> filled with the Spirit, they're going to get it. Right? And God supplies the power there. As Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem. Coming upon you is power from on high. Don't leave. And when you get that power, this is what is going to transform you. And we all have it. The moment you believed in Christ, you were baptized by the Spirit. You, you and I are all miraculously indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Making you and I the temple of the living God. We're indwelt by Christ. That sounds powerful. And it is. Uh, so, uh, it says here in um, uh, 652... Mark shares with us, but their heart was hardened. And we just talked about this a few days ago. In uh, Ephesians 4.17, speaking of the Gentile, uh, in this passage is, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. A Gentile, ethnos, the Greek word means uh, nations. So it's the unbeliever of the world. <clears throat> and Paul describes the unbeliever of the world. They have a futility of mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance of that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. <clears throat> but And Paul says to us in this passage, don't walk anymore like the Gentiles walk. In other words, there's the potential of us being just like this. We, don't, we can't lose our salvation. But we can be dark in our minds. We get our eyes off of the right thing. We get our eyes off of the truth. And we despair. Darkness is a crazy thing. It's an amazing thing. It is amazing to me. How easily darkness can, like a cancer, take over my soul. Like it shouldn't. I think I know enough. And I guess that sounds pretty proud, me saying that. But uh, it is astounding to me. One little thought here, another little thought there, that grabs onto another little thought over here, and then it's like a, a little chain that wraps itself around your soul and chokes it. And all because your thinking is just on the wrong thing. Little sheep we are, aren't we? So the disciples definitely cannot here deny the power of Christ. Here's their problem. They don't know what it means to be united to him. Not yet. He's going to teach them this. But even that, it's going to go over all their heads. But fortunately for us, John is going to record it all in John chapter 6. And we're all going to get to study it for the rest of our lives. Eat this bread. And you'll never hunger again. 
Uh, Paul writes, 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And this is a, is a key that to have eternal life doesn't mean that you understand it. Every believer has it, not every believer understands it. What is eternal life? It's a lot more than eternity, meaning it's a lot more than duration. You know, we're going to live forever with God, and forever is a long time. But what is eternal life is a quality of life. It's God's life. It's a quality of life. So, um, if we come to be in Him and Him and us forever, which we are, not only are we with Him forever, but we're always in the sphere, in the, in the arena, if you will, the sphere in the midst of it, of His wonderful life. It's always ours. The wonderful life that is eternal life, it's always ours. However, we may fail to grasp that. And so while we are in possession of this wonderful life, we actually live as though we're not. Uh, you know, the flesh is corrupt, as Paul writes in that passage in Ephesians 4, that the flesh is corrupt, and it'll always be corrupt. And... Therefore, when we, as Paul says here, we have to grab hold of it. And this is to be diligent. This is to be uh, alert and sober and diligent. To day in and day out pursue what is eternal life. What, you know, this life, what is it? To be in prayer to God constantly about grabbing hold of this. So as he writes in Galatians 6, 8... For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Right? So sowing is what? Planting. So it's where, where is my effort going? You know, where is the effort of my thinking and my way and what I uh, determine to do? What do I invest in? And... So here it says that we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. So the Holy Spirit is in us to guide us, to teach us, as Jesus said. He's going to lead you into all truth, and he's going to what else? And the main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the Son to us. As the Lord said in John 16, He will reveal me to you, and you will glorify me. And so this becomes this life that I have faith in the Spirit. You know, the Spirit's in me to give me the power and the wisdom uh, from my study of His Word to understand from the Word, to take from the Word, and therefore to do what I'm called to do. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to be that person. And at times I'm not. But thank, thanks to the grace of God... I am completely forgiven, and I'm going to get with it. You know, again, I'm going to repent, confess, move on. And, uh, and therefore, this becomes a supernatural life. So we have to learn to, and I'd say uh, here, as I, when I wrote this, I wondered if this was right enough. 
<laughs> but I'll just read it as I wrote it. I, you know, it says, we have to learn to no longer be astonished at the supernatural power of our everyday lives. And I, th- I, I don't mean by that at all, which I continue to write here. It doesn't mean that we lose the wonder or appreciation of it. But my point is, is that the supernatural life must become the normal life. Yeah, in other words, saying like, I was good today. Wow, what a day, you know. And that's like once a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this, it, this life has to become common. And this is what we have. And all kinds of obstacles against it, but so what? So what? Uh, we can get we can get really bummed out about the obstacles. We have to be able to say, so what? The obstacles are there on purpose. Yeah, if the disciples don't have the storm against them and they just whiz across the sea in like an hour, you know, the appearing of Christ and calming the storm isn't going to mean near as much to them as if they were at it for eight hours and getting hardly anywhere. But then, and 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 in their exhaustion. Then Jesus says, now you can rest. It, and it makes us powerful. Uh, you know, in, in, in the world, the, the, the powerful people who profess to be powerful or show themselves to be powerful are the, the hard, the stern. At times, you know, they're just like unmovable, stern and hard but in reality, power comes from a softened heart. Uh, and that's the imagery here. See, in Ephesians 4, right, what is the, the uh, description of the unbeliever is hardness of heart? At the end here of Matthew 6, they hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And this hard shell of a heart, which is are misunderstandings, right? They don't, they don't get it. The, the reason their hearts are hard is they don't understand. Uh, geez, you know, the disciples say, hey, look, they're all hungry, so we should send them home. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they say, that's impossible. And it, it's, a, it's a wrong perspective, right? <clears throat> when our perspective is right, the truth, breaks through the hard shell and of our wrong assumptions. And all of us come into the spiritual life with tons of them. I've, I, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> because over time, you have to become humble or you're not going to learn a thing. You have to. The truth is not what you expected it to be, so it breaks you. Yeah, if after learning the scripture, if it only confirmed what you thought you already knew, oh God, I can't imagine how prideful you'd be. It's like, ah, oh, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. But it teaches us things that we never imagined. We think we know who God is when we become born again and saved. We don't have a clue. We think we know who the Lord is. I have an idea. We think we know what it's going to take to overcome sin and weakness. We aren't a clue. And all of these things come upon us, and if you accept them, they break you. 
And that's a very good thing. And it makes you strong. So, Paul would say, after his thorn in the flesh, right there, so I say it properly, but after his thorn in the flesh, which he wanted gone, and then he, yeah, then he says uh, in verse 9, verse 8, 12, 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, concerning this I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather glory. It's not boast, it's really the word glory. I would rather glory about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell. And the New American Standard says, in me. But the preposition is on me. And it means that it, it's really Paul's reference to what he wrote in Romans 13, that we're clothed with Christ. And, you know, if I, if the truth of him doesn't break me, of my pride, then that power, though available, is outside of my reach. But, if the truth, and it does, and, and everything about this, you know, the, the thorn in the flesh is some weakness that Paul had to deal with. We don't know what it is, but all of us have to deal with things that we have no control over. And it causes us, one, one thing or another, you know, it causes us to be more prideful or it causes us to just uh, hope in the Lord. And when we hope in the Lord, we become strong. And it breaks us. And it's a good thing. And you, when you become that kind of broken, humble believer, you become a super learner. You will learn so much more. And you'll find yourself, and it's one of the things we're going to look at in prayer when we do the doctrine of prayer, is to meditate, to take the time to take the truth that's in your soul and make it make sense to yourself. And that takes time. It takes time and time to ponder what the truth really is. And so, you know, rather than just knowing the Scripture, really truly understanding the Scripture. So it's the softened heart that's courageous, not the hard heart. So, and this takes time. And I'm taking way too much time to get to where I want to go. So let's go to Matthew 14, please. Same, uh, same event. And only in Matthew is it recorded that Peter, God bless him, says, I want to walk on the water too. And this, he's so great. So in Matthew 14, 28, Peter answered and said to him, Lord, if it is you, <laughs> what does he think it is, right? If, if it's really you. Command me to come to you on the water. So at least one thing he understands here is that the Lord has to command him to do it, right? So the Lord, ha he, he acknowledges the Lord's authority over, over nature, you know, his power over everything. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I'll find out how many steps he took. But it, it is clear here 
And with my limited knowledge of Greek, I check this out. It is, I don't think there's any other way to, to, for it to mean then that he actually walked on the water. But seeing the wind, he became afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, uh, this uh, Warren Wearsby, he writes a great comment. He has a great commentary on the entire Bible, in fact. But he says, uh, it's easy to criticize Peter for sinking, but have you ever gotten out of the boat yourself? I love that. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's easy to criticize the disciples in general, but you know there, there's no there's no means for that. There's no reason for that. But so uh, the point here is that if we fear, now again we have this eternal life that is a life full of miracles. But if we fear it, you can fear it. Because the life calls you to do things that are incredible. And the life calls you to do things, or the life calls you not to do things that the flesh always wants to do. And that's a scary thing. But if we don't fear it, right? So I would say the analogy here to Peter, who cares if he can walk on water or not? It doesn't matter if we can or not. Uh, what matters, this walking on water is a walking of life that is above the earth, right? It's above the nonsense. It's above the lies. It's above the fear. It's above the lust. It's above the pride. It's above the sin. It's high ground. And that's what walking on water is. But if we fear it, or we fear the consequences, um, then we won't. Then we sink. And when we sink, we don't die. When we sink, we're just in the world, living worldly lives with worldly thoughts. And that's not the life. So let's go to John 6 for just a few minutes. So after all this happens, they finally get across. Jesus gets into the boat. He calms the storm. They immediately go to the shore. <laughs> the disciples have been rowing for eight hours against the storm, against the wind. Jesus gets in, calms the storm, and they probably zipped across the sea in like 20 minutes. Yeah. And... Uh, so there's a wonderful imagery in all of this. Yeah. Life with him, trust in him, right? Even long journeys seem kind of quick. Doesn't life go by quicker when you're happy? <laughs> right? Uh, but when you're in the doldrums, man, time drags. We've been given a life where every day that this way the the challenge of this life makes every day not dull. Because it doesn't matter what you're doing or what you're not doing. You always have in front of you the task of having divine thought in your thought. And that is a day-by-day journey. 
So uh, in John 6.25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and he said to them, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? They didn't expect to see him there because, as we find in the other Gospels, that his boat, the boat, they realized that Jesus didn't go across on a boat. They don't know about the walking on the water, but they didn't expect to see him. And so this uh, shows us mankind, this is what Jesus is going to teach them here, and we're going to read through it far too rapidly, but uh, mankind needs union with Christ, and everything else is far less valuable. This is what everybody needs, to be in union with him and therefore have his life. And that, it makes, it's everything, it's everything. It is the most important thing. So he says to them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. So this, uh, don't work for it. It almost sounds like this, what he's going to say, is work, but it's not, and we'll deal with this later, but... Just to say quickly, faith is not a work, right? But faith is the uh, grabbing hold of the work of another. So there is work involved. It's just not ours. It's his work. And and it's 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 a terrible, prideful thing for a man or any human being to say that they can work for eternal life. That there's something that you can do that can impress God so much that he will reward you with eternal life. That is ridiculous. It is only the work of Christ that earns for us eternal life. He, and he did it all. It is finished. And, so, and that's what he's going to say here. And so they said to him, Luke verse 28, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Right? Therein lies the work. The work is mine, not yours. But when you believe in me, we grab hold of that work and, the, and, it's for our, and it becomes our benefit. And therefore, we become what this is. So look at verse 30 now. And he said, therefore, to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes from heaven and gives life to the world. And the bread is him. And he's going to say, eat of this bread, which is another image for faith, to believe upon him. And by believing on him to eat this bread, which we're about to do in in a few minutes, right? To celebrate the Lord's Supper is to take the Lord into yourself. But through faith, by your faith in him, his work and his person become yours. And that opens up his life to each of us. And that life is a life of miracles. Uh, and, and they're going to say, give us this bread, right? Give, come on, let's, 
we don't we're tired of working to make bread. We're tired of you know, like just give us this bread. This would be great. And they think it's literal bread. And it shows that, you know, what does mankind really want when he doesn't see what he really needs? Because what we need is Christ. We need his life. But we think a full belly, a perfect marriage, a perfect love life, a superabundance of money and power and security, and on and on the list goes. The Republicans would win the House. Yeah. And on and on the list goes. And we think when when that, when that is all made right, and is it true? You know, my favorite rich man, Solomon. Ecclesiastes 1.8. This is after he says, the sun goes up, the sun goes down. The rivers, the rivers fill the sea, but the sea doesn't become full. You know, it rains, and then it rains again, and it's this, this cycle. What's amazing about how he says this is all those cycles are miraculous, aren't they? You know, the, we just take it all for granted. But with, with the wrong perspective, the sun coming up and down becomes mundane. And the rain and the rivers and all, all of nature that just keeps going on its cycles that we all take for granted becomes mundane. And that's what he says here. And then he says, look, all things are worrisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. Man is never satisfied. Amen to that. But, and I love the word satisfied, because Jesus said, if you thirst and hunger for righteousness, you will be satisfied. I will fill you. That's what he says here. Eat this bread, and you'll never hunger again. So our Lord delivers us from this fallen world and our fallen selves and earns for us eternal life and enters us into the fellowship of the Trinity. It is a life of miracles in a world that is wearisome. In a world that longs for the wrong miracles. In a world that longs for the wrong power. We have the right power and the right miracles. And though we have to live in this world, we can live eternal life in this world. Uh, let's uh, have our... Uh, our guys hand out the elements this morning. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you.
Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. The <clears throat> This uh, work that Christ did for us and given us His life and dying on the cross, which we celebrate here with the bread and, and the cup, as He said the, when He handed the cup to the disciples, He said, this is the new covenant in My blood. And which is given for the forgiveness of sins. And so through this cup, with his work, our sins are forgiven completely and we're entered into this life. This new covenant is this life uh, that has been promised since way in the past. Uh, new covenant is written about in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 and repeated in the book of Hebrews. And part of that covenant is that we would be indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, and now that we are, we're able to, as he says, as Paul says here, to look upon the Lord and look upon his glory. And sure enough, you know, again, just like when Christ does miracles, if he's way over, you know, he's doing his miracles over there and I'm, you know, I'm very impressed by them. But if I have no part with that, you know, what, what is it, what is it really to me? But then when we become in union with him, his miracles become our own. And, and then he reveals to us, you know, what are the true miracles? And it's not making a lot of bread. It's being able to love like he loves. And all the virtues that are his, this life. So it's actually able to see the glory of God. But then the promises, as Paul writes here, is that this glory would become ours. And that, therefore, I become a part of it. The glory of God, I walk in it, I see it, I live it. I mean, I grab hold of it, I taste it. And that's what he gave us. I mean, that's what eternal life is. To comprehend the value of eternal life is to see the glory of God. To comprehend the value of eternal life is to see the glory of God. This bread and this cup is that value. What it represents, it represents Him. His body and His work on the cross. Is there anything more valuable than that? In this whole world, all the riches and value of everything all put together doesn't even remotely come close to the value of our Lord. Nothing does. And when we get that, We'll be happy because we have Him. He's all yours. He's all mine. We lack nothing of Him. There's not, none of you have more of Him than, than I do and vice versa. All believers throughout the ages in the church have had Him fully. Paul writes in Colossians 2 that we're complete in Him. Complete. Complete. Astounding. And when we get that, all this, what the flesh wants, which is all earthly, all mundane, all dark, all sinful, 
we won't want that anymore. It doesn't mean we're not going to fall into it from time to time. But we won't want it. We want something else. We want Him. And we always have Him. So my other passage I want to read to you and then we'll take the elements. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Even our own failures will not separate us from his love. And for that, he died. So as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Our Father who is in heaven, your name is holy. Your kingdom will come and your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. For our Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has come to earth as the bread of life and he has conquered and overwhelmingly conquered sin and death and has given us life. What a gift. So Father, we thank you that you recall us to this table time and time again, as we do here, celebrate it once a month, and we are reminded that nothing in this life can separate us from the love of Christ and that nothing will come and uh, upend or usurp His work, His work in our behalf, which provides for us eternal life. Thank you so much, Father, for your amazing grace. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you, everybody. Uh, Just uh, one last thing, which is to take our offering, and then we are finite. Thank you. It was a wonderful time for us, for me, anyway. Yeah. Let's uh, pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. We give to you as your priests, your believer priests in worship of you. And we ask, Father, that you bless these finances to your glory. Thank you for a local assembly which we can gather together and, and together learn your word and glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
You re- I would have liked to have seen that, Roger. Yeah. <laughs> you do have three legs. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for our fellowship and that we have unity by means of your love in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, this time is for you. If you're listening, please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. He's the only Savior of the world. And He is God the Son who became a man, born of a virgin. It's all very true. And that He has died on the cross for the sins of the world. That was His mission. And He accomplished it. And He did it for you. He was judged for your sins and mine. For the sins of the world, He was judged. And therefore, if you believe upon Him, you will be saved. He's done all the work. What you have to do is accept it. You have to believe in Him as your Savior, and you will be saved. That is the promise of God's Word. Well, thank you again, Father, and bless us uh, and to recall Your Word and bless us all. In Christ's name, amen.